0: Welcome to episode number 164 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and I am online editor for the Northern Miner, and I also help out with social media, and I also host this podcast, which is a great pleasure, and we have a very interesting episode for the tech people, and I assume these days that's everybody, and we are going to feature the... Discussion on automation and big data, the big panel discussion that we had at the Progressive Mind Forum at the Mars Discovery District in October. This is part of our ongoing series that is profiling some of the speeches that were given. They've all been very good. I go to a lot of these events, and I think this is my favorite that I've heard yet. Every talk here has been a winner, and this one is no different and it addresses building the digital mind of the future. That can mean so many things, as you'll see in this episode, and you're going to see how it's not as simple as it sounds. You hear this a lot in mining, and it's, you know, half true that it's one of the laggard sectors of the economy when it comes to adopting new technology. But what you're going to hear in this episode is more of that, but you're also going to, what I took away from it is it's really not as easy as it sounds. It's not simply a matter of, we should just be putting more money into it, and then it's going to all be better. It's actually quite complicated; You can lose a lot of money in these things, so I think what this discussion really shows is how it's complicated the technology is complicated, and technology and mining i mean that's it's a Mining is a huge business and there are many different facets to it. So it's not like you just start applying technology to it and everything works out. Every, like whether you're underground, I mean, the processing, I mean, there's the whole financial side. There's the whole how do you run your business metrics. It's not as simple as it sounds. So you get a lot of insight in this panel. Uh, It features Louis-Pierre Campot, who is the team lead for artificial intelligence at Nutrax Technologies, Stephen DeJong, CEO of Verify, Nadine Miller, independent director of West Dome, who we Heard from a few weeks ago. She was the one. Is your mind being hacked? Back to the digital mind idea. Uh, Pavel Abdur Rahman, partner and data scientist at IBM. Eddie Bilbro, business manager for automation and digitalization at Sandvik, and Walter Sigelko, president of Hardline. So this is quite the heavy hitters in this industry. These are people who are placed in positions to know and to speak with authority on this subject. So that is our main feature. Also, we have some really interesting stories on the website. I'm going to touch on a few of them here. We have a new story by Jeffrey Christian, a new interview. Hopefully we're going to get him on the podcast sometime soon here. We're checking into that, but we got a year-end outlook from Jeffrey Christian. Linus is building a rare earths processing plant, and they have a plans for a second one so real developments on that side of things we see updates with osisco metals at its pine point property and even more so that's all coming up if you want to find us online you can find us at northernminer.com you can also find us on twitter at northernminer you can find us on instagram at the northernminer and you'll see there we just posted our front page for the week so that's always a fun place to go and check that and also you can find us on facebook YouTube, and LinkedIn. And before we jump into the news stories, let's just go to our mining minute with Nevada Copper's chief commercial officer, Mark Wall. And we'd like to just thank Nevada Copper uh, for sponsoring us in this episode, last episode, and the next two episodes. They're very generous sponsors, and they have a very interesting project in Nevada, and it has all to do with copper. So let's dig a little deeper here with Mark Wall. Mark Wall. So, Mark, thank you for joining us again. And could you go more in depth about Nevada Copper and its projects in Nevada? What are the broader prospects for Nevada Copper?
1: For sure, Adrian. As we've just discussed, it's exciting that the underground project is imminently in production. 13 and a half year mine life with a significant inferred resource that will expand and extend that mine life. About two miles away, we have a very large open pit project. This project is around 20 years of mine life and, again, is expandable. It's open to the north, the west, and at depth. It's a very large 70,000 tonne per day project, and we're completing the final feasibility study on that project. We also have an exciting land package to our east, about three miles away, called the Teddy Boy prospect, and we are conducting some very exciting exploration in that area. So what we have, Adrian, is a very long-life property situated in Nevada. That sounds very interesting. And so by long life, what does that mean? Well, we have 13 and a half years of the underground with a significant inferred resource. So reasonably, that that will be significantly longer than that. Then we'll start the open pit, which is at 20 years with significant expansion capability. And then we have this whole other land package to the east that's very exciting to us. So I predict that we will be in Nevada and in Yarrington on this project for many, many years.
0: Okay, excellent. Thank you, Mark. And we will catch you next week on the following installment. So turning to the website here, we're going to start with Jeffrey Christian's outlook for 2020 and thoughts on 2019. This interview was done by acting editor-in-chief, Trish Saywell. I believe she's going to try and get a audio interview with Jeffrey uh, this week. We shall see. Fingers crossed on that one. What Jeffrey Christian says is quite eye-opening. I mean, there's. I'm not going to read everything here. I mean, he talks about how the U.S.-China trade war is a bit of a red herring. For investors, he thinks that investors are way too focused on this, and that ultimately he thinks it doesn't really matter as much as people are giving it credit for. And again, you can read more in detail on northernminer.com. This is something else I found particularly interesting. This is a quote, even though the economy is puttering along and central banks are being accommodative, you could have problems in the lending and debt markets because of changes in the mechanics of banking. Obviously, central banks are extremely worried about that, but they know that they have to find replacement for LIBOR. So the risk of something happening that might upset the apple cart in terms of mechanical changes is probably greater than what some of the people outside the banking sector realize. So again, the sort of plumbing, as people are calling it, of the financial markets continues waving a little red flag. I mean, it's It seems so arcane to those outside of finance and banking, and this is like hardcore banking. So Jeffrey Christian seems to be pointing to some of this lending business that's going on and overnight lending and all these sort of issues in the markets. And he's sort of just highlighting that as a potential area for concern. He also talks about palladium. Again, this is a pretty long article. It's 2,400 words. So I'm just picking a few highlights for you guys, but there's quite a bit to chew on. So I highly recommend you check it out. You know, we love the palladium price. It's just a a weekly source of drama for your host here. Christian talks about palladium. So let's see what he says. This morning, the palladium price is more than double the platinum price, and that's going to be the case for a long time. You're starting to find investors that want to believe platinum prices will rise, but the reality is that they really struggle around the $900 per ounce mark. We don't think it will rise dramatically over the next year or several years because part of the bearishness about platinum is that diesel is going away and internal combustion engines are going away much more rapidly than they really are. And then he continues on the EV electric vehicle market. If you look at the auto industry and what they expect of growth in the electric vehicle market, and compare it to what the metal industry and others are saying, the auto industry is much more cautious about the growth rate and market share taking of EVs because they say there's not enough electricity. The grids can't support the distribution of the electricity that's needed, and the infrastructure that's required to build the components and controllers isn't there. Now, quick aside... I mean, you have the lithium guys saying that there's not enough lithium. Now you have Jeffrey Christian saying that the electricity grid can't support an electric vehicle fleet, at least at the market share that's being projected. Interesting. Continuing. EVs will probably grow in terms of market share, but it's going to be very slow growth. And even if you use the most bullish forecasts about EVs, you have only about 30% of the market being EVs by 2040. So that means 65% or more of the cars will still have internal combustion engines and will need platinum and palladium in their catalyst to clean up their emissions. ICEs and platinum and palladium are going to be used For a long period of time, this is being missed in the market. And as a result, we think the platinum market is underappreciated. We see platinum prices struggling towards $1,000 per ounce and palladium pretty much plateauing around $1,800 to $1,900 per ounce. So that is Jeffrey Christian on 2019 and 2020 Go check out the full article. It's just full of insight. So a great interview with Jeffrey Christian. Also, we have a fascinating story on developments in the rare earth market, which keep sort of popping their heads up. It's this interesting kind of counter narrative to the whole China-U.S. trade spat or trade war or whatever you want to call it. The rare earth, kind of one of those stories that are kind of easy in some respects to ignore because they're just rare earths. But you need rare earths. So it's not just rare earths. Like you actually, if you're the US, you do have to consider if China completely dominates the market and things are getting testy in the South China Seas, you actually have to consider where you're going to get your rare earths from. So it's easy to dismiss rare earths considering the performance of the stocks over the last 10 years, but... The stocks are not the concern of the president, right? So, we have a new story with Australian miner Linus, Linus Corporation. They are a rare earth miner that's, they actually survived the storm of the last rare earth bull market. A lot of companies went out of business, like Molly Corp. Linus survived, and they have just picked Kalgoorlie to build a new. Processing plant. Kalgoorlie is in Western Australia. And so I'm just going to go into the story. Australian rare earths miner Linus has selected the city of Kalgoorlie to build its new cracking and leaching plant to extract low level radioactivity from the ore mined at its Mount Weld operation, which is then shipped to Malaysia for final treatment. The world's only major producer of rare earths outside China said it planned to begin building the plant, which will perform the first step of concentrate processing in 2021 completion is expected late 2022 or early 2023 it said the decision is a further step towards delivering on the Australian government's critical minerals strategy and the objective of the Western Australian government for more downstream processing Linus said in the statement the miner also said it planned to explore opportunities for next stage of rare earth processing and Linus which controls just over 10% of the global rare earths market said last month it was fine tuning funding plans to build a separation plant in Texas, the facility would be the world's only large-scale producer of separated medium and heavy rare earth products outside of China and currently accounts for 70% of global production. Beijing controls 90% of a $4 billion global market for materials used in magnets and motors that power phones, wind turbines, electric vehicle, and military devices. Just look at the environmental group reaction because rare earths are known for their extremely polluting Uh, processing methods. And there's also radioactive aspects to it. After relentless attacks in Malaysia from environmental groups and locals fearing the effects of radioactive waste generated by Linus's refinery, the miner agreed to relocate it to Western Australia by 2025. The deal was a condition imposed by the Southeast Asian country to renew Linus's operating license." And I also want to turn to this Rio Tinto story, Uh, this social unrest theme that's been developing all throughout as I've been hosting this podcast. It continues. And we have a—and the headline is, Rio Tinto suspends South African operation over criminal activity— And I'm going to go right into it here. Increasing violence in communities around its Richards Bay Minerals Complex in South Africa has forced Rio Tinto to curtail all mining operations there, the Anglo-Australian miner says. The company reported, quote, an escalation of criminal activity toward the unit's employees and said one person had been shot and seriously injured. Smelters at the unit are operating at a reduced level. Meanwhile, in the United States, Rio Tinto has announced plans to invest $1.5 billion over the next six years to extend production at its Kennecott copper operation in Utah to 2032. The investment will start next year and enable the company to develop the second phase of the South Wall pushback project. What you see here is a pullback in unstable areas that lack security and uh, increased investment in more stable areas like the U.S., And here's a quote from Rio Tinto CEO John Sebastian Jacques, who told Reuters, quote, We like copper. We like the U.S. If we had not taken this decision, our position in the U.S. market would be shrinking. So maybe we don't want to read too much into the correlation. As they say, correlation is not causation. Uh, But we do see, again, this Pullback in uh, places that lack security and an increased investment in places that are more friendly to the miner. And so, yeah, so that I just wanted to touch on that just to continue that sort of theme because I think there, it's to me, it seems like it's something that is there are too many signals to ignore. I guess what I'm trying to say is this theme is starting to look like a trend now. It's possible this was always the case and that it's simply being reported more now, these sorts of violent disputes, but I think it, they're definitely something to keep your eye on. And finally, I just, keep, well, I just got a little nerd little story out of Ecuador that I just, for whatever reason, Ecuador just keeps coming up. And it's an interesting one. Kinross sells stake in London Gold for $150 million. Kinross Gold used to own Fruta del Norte, which is ...considered one of the biggest undeveloped gold projects in the world. It's in Ecuador, and they paid... Let me see if it says in this article, but they paid a fortune for it. Oh, here we go. Located in southeastern Ecuador, the deposit was discovered by Aurelian Resources in 2006. You might remember Keith Barron from last week's episode of Orania Resources... with a guy with the archaeological company that's looking for the lost cities of gold... Um, So Kinross bought it off of his previous company, Aurelian Resources, in an all-stock deal valued at $1.2 billion. And Lundin Gold acquired the project from Kinross in December 2014 in a cash and share deal valued at $240 million. I mean, not quite $0.10 on the dollar, maybe $0.20 on the dollar they got it for. And the transaction consisted of $150 million in cash and 26 million common shares of Lundin Gold. And yeah, here we go. Kerry Smith, who covers Lundin Gold for Haywood, expects Fruta del Norte to produce 290,000 ounces in 2020. Quote, the Fruta del Norte project ranks as one of the largest and highest grade undeveloped gold projects in the world. Gold prices are moving higher and the timing is looking good for this new producer. Smith has a buy rating on the company company lending gold, and $9.25 as a target price. Yeah, and Kinross, for its part, said the move was part of its, quote, portfolio management strategy and broader efforts to, quote, further strengthen its balance sheet. So it looked like an easy way to raise money, probably. So yeah, so that's the latest out of Ecuador, another story out of Ecuador. So no shortage of news out there. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. Metal Prices to metal prices we'd like to once again thank our friends at infomine.com who provide us with these metal prices and if you'd like to see them for yourself just do a search on infomine and metal prices into google and it is the first result you will see and on december 10th we have gold at one thousand four hundred sixty six dollars per ounce we have silver at sixteen dollars and sixty six cents Per ounce. Platinum is at $905.08 per ounce. And you might remember Jeffrey Christian saying that he expects platinum to struggle up to $1,000 per ounce. And palladium is once again higher. It's at $1,890.64. And that is $31 higher than last week and $98 higher than two weeks ago. Now again, if we go back to Jeffrey Christian's outlook, he sees Palladium sort of topping out at one thousand eight hundred to one thousand nine hundred. So it would mean it would have to stop more or less here or a little bit higher. So let's see what happens. It seems to be showing no signs of slowing down, but one imagine it has to stop somewhere. So Palladium one thousand eight hundred ninety dollars and sixty four cents, and on December sixth. Copper is at $2.66 per pound. Aluminum is at $0.79 cents per pound. Lead is at $0.85 cents per pound, which is $0.03 cents lower than last week. Nickel is at $6.09, which is $0.15 cents lower than last week. So it's starting to taper down over the last... I mean, it was six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. is was at $7.66, and it's slowly dropped on each of our show's until this week it's at six dollars and nine cents so nickel is definitely relaxed tin is at seven dollars and sixty five cents that is 23 cents higher than last week and about the same price as two months ago we have a new cobalt price at fifteen dollars and eighty eight cents so that's below our previous quote of sixteen dollars and ten cents and zinc is at a dollar and two cents and that is three cents lower than last week again with zinc it's actually the lowest it's been since I came onto this podcast. So Zinc had a nice run up to $1.15 in our quotes, and now it's back to $1. two. So those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the automation and big data panel discussion at the Progressive Mine Forum. How do you build the digital mine of the future? What does it look like? What's involved? Here you have six experts from different areas. And Alicia Hyatt, the editor of the Canadian Mining Journal, is the moderator. She also edits Diamonds in Canada. You might remember her from that story we were talking about, I think it was last episode on diamonds. Maybe it was the episode before. Diamond Sector Battles Crisis Fatigue, which I just thought was such a great, one of my favorite uh, headlines of the last few weeks. So well done, Alicia, and she does a great job in this Very interesting panel. Again, this is AI, this is machine learning, this is big data, and you got people from IBM to high-end consultants to mine people. Alicia introduces everybody, so I'm not going to do it twice for you. I hope you enjoy the talk, and I'll see you on the other side.
2: tackling automation and big data. This is definitely a place where we should see some real kind of game-changers and creativity impacting the bottom line for companies that are currently operating. So let me introduce Alicia Hyatt. Alicia is the editor of the Canadian Mining Journal. She joined the Northern Miner Group around the same time I did back in 2005. She's done an amazing job bringing top-notch content to Canadian Mining Journal and we're uh, honored to have her here to lead this discussion. Please Alicia.
3: Okay, so I will start introducing the panel. Closest to me is Louis-Pierre Campo. He is team lead of artificial intelligence at Nutrax Technologies. Nutrax specializes in integrating IoT and AI technologies into underground mining operations. And just a note, it was recently acquired by Sandvik. Steven DeJong, right next to him, is CEO of Verify. A technology startup that's modernizing the way mining companies communicate information using virtual reality and other presentation tools. Steve was also CEO of Integra Gold, familiar to everyone here, I'm sure, and is currently chairman of Integra Resources. Nadine Miller is a geotechnical engineer and an independent director for Weststone Gold Mines. Nadine is also a strategic advisor at Oz Ventures, a venture capital firm that invests in cybersecurity intelligence and physical security AI technologies. Pavel Abdurrahman is a partner and head of IBM Services data science consulting practice in Canada. He and his team have worked on digital transformation solutions to drive revenue growth and reduce costs in many industries, including natural resources. Edward Bilborough is business line manager for automation and digitalization at Sandvik Mining and Rock Technology. Eddie works with customers to implement digital and autonomous solutions to enhance the performance of their operations. And at the end, Walter Sigelko is the president and founder of Hardline Solutions based in Sudbury. Since Hardline's inception in 1996, it's grown into a leader in automation, teleoperation and remote control technology in mining. And just a note of thanks uh, to Sandvik, which is a diamond sponsor of the Progressive Mind Forum, and to Hardline, which is a gold sponsor. We have a, a big job today to discuss both automation and big data in one panel. Last year, it was two separate panels. So we'll, we'll do our best. What we're really talking about today is the digital and automated mine of the future, the blueprint for how to get there, and how miners can reap the rewards of existing and emerging technology right now. We've already heard that there is a lot of technology that's available that uh, miners can take advantage of. So let's start with the automation side. Automation is not new to the industry. Eddie, can you give us some idea of the existing level of automation in, in underground mining and some of the drivers towards automation?
4: Sure. The technology itself is not necessarily new. I mean, there's been various levels of operating equipment, either remotely or with automation, for going on the best part of, you know, 15 years now. Within Sandvik, we've been doing it at Cadelco since 2004. And in the early days, a lot of the drivers were around safety and eliminating people or Removing people from the uh, the dangerous work faces. It's really just been in the kind of the last two years where, you know, the the, the whole push around productivity and utilization really drove the opportunity to to increase your um, your production at mine sites there, and, and and that's where we've really seen a lot of growth uh, with a lot of the collaboration and our partners over the last two years. You know, we kind of speak about the automated mine of the future and and how it's going to look. I touched earlier before about a mine in, in Mali of all places in the world that we've been partnering with for the best part of two to three years. They've kind of promoted themselves as being the first digital mine in the world and that includes... Operating all their equipment from surface via automation, be it their trucks, their loaders, their production drills, all their mining equipment. Um, and that's been a two-year journey. How that came about and kind of the theme around today was it came around from a, from a vision from their, their senior management and their CEO saying that we need to do things differently in a country like Mali. So conventionally in West Africa, you know, these mining companies, you know, they'll bring in a, an Australian contractor. It might cost the best part of, you know, a quarter of a million dollars to be as an operator. And that really wasn't a sustainable part of the business for them going forward. And then how they saw their business being a partner in their community. So they they saw automation and technology as a step change in how they leverage or uh, create a sustainable partnership with the local community. And to the point that one of their managers had a conversation with him. And he was kind of saying, you know, maybe 20 to 30 percent of the population or the local community might have had a high school education but 80, 90% of them all, all knew how to operate a cell phone kind of thing. And that was one of the, the light bulb moments for them to say, look, technology in this community, it's, it's not such a big step change. But maybe, you know, some of these other skill sets were. But like I said, that's just part of how they see the future, being a sustainable digital miner in their community.
3: So there are a lot of options when it comes to automation and getting workers away from the dangers underground. And a lot of it is proven technology. As Eddie mentioned, this has been uh, around for 15 years or or more. And we saw a lot of compelling metrics in Eddie's uh, presentation earlier today. Walter, can you talk a little bit about why the adoption rate of automation aren't, aren't higher?
2: In any type of business, it costs money to step forward, to move forward. And in mining, there's, there's a lot of discussion about the, the old-timers around for a long time. you know, And they know how to break rock. And they've been breaking it for a long time. And it takes a truck, and it takes an LHD, and it takes a drill, and it takes all this equipment. So all these existing mines, these producing mines that are out there, they have all this equipment already. So our company, we specialize in the used equipment, retrofitting machinery. And what happens is is, is you get into a, a project where... They see the need. Everybody understands that you either start adopting these new technologies, new ways of mining, or you're going to die. You know, eventually this is, this is not the, a choice of doing it or not doing it. You have to do it. So, you know, you get involved in a project, and the mine has a the mine manager and all the people in the mine, they have a mandate. They need to move so much ore every day. If they don't move that, shareholders pull their money out and... Well, they give it to Apple. They <laughs> don't give it to somebody who makes more money, it's that simple. So what happens is, is in these projects where you're retrofitting machines and you're trying to introduce new technologies, and it comes down to we move or or we give you a machine to work with, they don't give us the machine. So you end up on site for a long time, projects drag, and it takes a lot of willpower to just force you know, these projects through. Now, that sounded really negative, we have done over 3,000 projects in the 24 years or so since we've been in business, so, you know, it, it, we do it successfully, but, you know, you have to have the people on site, so the real answer to everything is, is you, the, the, the players, and it's all people at the end of the day. If those people are not on board 100% with taking this major change, and it's kind of not a step change, it's a major change from sending everybody underground to sending technicians underground to fix a machine and running it from surface. You have to have everybody online to actually make those projects go through. I agree. It's only the last couple of years where we've actually seen the adoption rate actually start to change now.
3: We're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, people aspect a little bit later on. But for now, I want to talk a little bit about the limitations of uh, automated uh, technology underground. Currently, automated machinery has to be kept separate from manually operated machinery for safety reasons. Eddie, can you tell us how far away we are from being able to operate mixed fleets underground and whether that's a necessary step towards the mine of the future?
4: Sure. So, I mean, when you say mixed fleet, we speak about... um, having people operating in the same active zone as as an autonomous piece of equipment. So until now, I mean, the safety ratings is probably, it's been a limitation, but it's also been a a barrier to to being able to do that on purpose because the the detection and the the technology around scanning and people detection has created a barrier to eliminate those kind of safety potential risks. So it's, it's social as much as the technology side of things as well. I mean, the perception is that, you know, there's somebody operating equipment, you know, potentially, you know, take Muscle White, for example, there where you're operating equipment from Thunder Bay. I mean, I, I know I'd be pretty scared if I was in that same stope as somebody from Thunder Bay operating a, a thousand kilometres away. So, I, I mean, the technology is coming and it's definitely in development as we speak, but it's definitely, you know, we're talking in the years kind of thing before you get into that collision avoidance um, detection and, and that, having that level of safety that, that matches people's. Mm-hmm. um you know a surety that they'd be operating and coming home safe every day um but but in saying that though I mean the other opportunity with if, if that becomes a parameter or, or a barrier to entry then you can start looking at changing your mind plan so all of a sudden you have a two days two shifts a day you have a manual shift in the day and then you have an automated shift during the evenings and those are the kind of concepts that you know with those limitations may come create opportunities as well so there's, there's several ways to look at it and, and not just this, okay, it is a limitation, but does that drive innovation around a conventional mindset of you or you have to have manual people down there 24-7? Do, is, that, is that a necessary evil?
3: Communications networks uh, play a big part in enabling both automation and big data applications and underground mines. Does anyone have a perspective on uh, how LTE and 5G technology is going to change mining or is it already changing mining? Walter?
2: Back in, in the early 2000s, arguably we, we may have been, this is before Wi-Fi was even a word, it didn't even exist. We were testing that technology underground at Falconbridge Mines with telephones, they didn't call it Wi-Fi, it, it was a, a, a proprietary standard at the time. We were testing this, we proved that it. it worked. Ventilation on demand, vehicle tracking, this is early 2000s. And the people who sold the communication systems at the time, this is the last time anybody actually moved any data over a leaky feeder system, okay? Which mine doesn't have Wi-Fi underground now? In that day, everybody said it wouldn't work. So what happens is, in any industry, Wi-Fi is a standard now. So how's the new guy come and sell something else? Well, I start talking 4G and 5G and 5L, and in 10 years, it'll be something else. There's always a new technology. So speaking from experience, and I'm sure you could agree with this one, as suppliers in this industry, they all work. We just have to work with them. That's all. So, we, you know, it's it's there. It's going to work. Is it the best for every situation? No. But people don't understand it when it comes to t- cellular networks and I go technical on this one here, but cellular and, and Wi-Fi. The cell networks back putting Wi-Fi into restaurants and Tim Hortons and McDonald's to get the bandwidth back for their cellular networks. So it's not one or the other. It's both. It depends on the circumstances. Not one's better or one's worse; it's both.
3: I want to introduce the uh, big data side of the conversation a little bit more formally. Maybe Pavel can talk to some of the what are what are some of the applications and capabilities of, of big data in mining right now? How is it being used?
5: Well, thank you for having me back. Um, you know, I, I did wanted to start with the analogy just just for perhaps in this room, because in the industry it seems we kind of reframe frame the problem wrong when we talk about big data. Uh, big data. To analytics or AI is no different than fuel to a machine. We don't talk about what are we going to do all well this fuel, right? We talk about way we have to move uh, certain things. We have to be more efficient. We talk about outcome, and I think with big data, that's the shift. I think I was here two years ago, probably that at least from our experiences, we're seeing definitely globally, but certainly with all the mining companies in Canada, the shift towards value schedule. And, you know, there's been all kind of public announcement of value schedule. Tech Resources made public announcement of amount of value to be created um, in 2019 with their digital investments. Suncor has announced uh, their value schedule. Um, There are a couple of other clients that we're active with. We would like them to start to talk about value schedule because value schedule really comes down to use cases at priority areas where there's executive sponsorship, to your point, already there. And the end users are ready to adopt these technologies. Uh, From an example perspective, there's been a lot of popular topics uh, in this conference around exploration with IBM's work. That is continuing at multiple sites with other companies. Use cases all around how to be more intelligent with the drilling budgets uh, related work. A lot more use cases are coming into the operation aspect of it. Things like halt cycle analytics, things like uh, predictive maintenance, inventory optimization, those kind of use cases. Also in processing, so process plants. If plants are instrumented with PI historian or some sort of a sensor-based information, how can you do? a real-time prediction of a big loss of value event, which could be multi-million dollars, and then how do you run different types of optimization scenario in real time so the plant operator can do something about it in the next 10 to 15 minutes to save millions of, of dollars of value. And then also in the shipping side of things around network optimization, around logistics optimizations, all the way to retail aspect of it. So from both pit to port, we see lots of use cases. Some mining companies are talking about becoming software companies. So there's been
6: lots of momentum we see in the last two years.
3: Does anyone else want to talk about uh, use cases, Louis-Pierre?
6: Sure. I mean, uh, I think in in underground uh, in particular, we're seeing a lot of these uh, event detection. So production event detections that are based on that. And uh, I I think globally, at least in the underground part, uh, we're seeing more of the here and now kind of applications of data science you know it's it's not necessarily predictive uh, or uh, predictions about what's gonna happen. it's more where are we and the ability to really collect data and know you know well, like what was the actual production when did my truck start at this morning? Why did it start at i don't know two hours later than the beginning of the shift and so i think I think the global trend right now is like where are we and then probably in the future we're gonna see more of the like where are we going with that?
3: So miners already have a, a lot of data right now. I'm just wondering how they can make better use of it. Um, Steve, you had a lot of success with Integra Gold by making your data available and getting outside parties to assist in your exploration targeting through the Integra Gold challenge. I'm just wondering what advice you would have for, for other companies in making use of their data.
7: So in 2014, we, we made an acquisition uh, we bought a processing facility out of bankruptcy and it came with this big data set. And we didn't know what to do with it, so we took a page out of Rob McEwen's book for 15 years earlier, it had done the, uh, the Gold Corp challenge. And we had a big exploration program. We didn't have any time to spend on that, kind of digging through this old data set. A lot of it was digital, but digital being scanned copies of, of underground handwritten drawings, so not quite digital. But we took the six terabyte database and we just put it online. And, and we spent about a million dollars cleaning it out. So I think big data... Doesn't really answer your question, but I think one thing that's very important with is data in general is the quality of that data. Our data set came from two different mines and those two mines, even though they're only five hundred meters apart, they never spoke to each other. So it may as well have been written in sort of Chinese and Russian. Even though that kind of the that kind of granodirite was granodiorite in this scenario you may have had eight different ways to describe it, and you could have three. So we had to standardize that data set. And then we put it online, and the idea was, well, anyone, anyone with any idea out there can take a look at this data and tell us where we should look for more gold, and it was a gold primary. To Nathan's earlier point, which I couldn't agree with more, you've got this sort of mentality towards innovation around kind of everyone would ask for a faster horse, not, not a car. And I don't think we really apply that method, and I can't say that we sort of tried to, but looking back, I think we would have even done that challenge very differently in, in a lot of different ways, because we very much said, like, tell us where within this sort of little plot of land, we should look to drill gold. Don't look to drill for gold. Where did, where did they miss? What I kind of learned through that process, um, and, and sort of fortunately, unfortunately, our, our company shortly thereafter went through a sales process. So we had, we had these phenomenal targets from 1,500 people from 90 countries and teams of all kinds of different kind of scientific backgrounds had, had given us, we didn't really get a chance to test them all. So I can't speak to the, the kind of did it work or not because the company that, that bought our company was entirely hyper-focused on just bringing the mine into production, not so much the exploration potential. They're starting to unveil that now. But when I look back at that experience, I, th- I think what I really learned from it is what we need to do with innovation in general, and this is data science, but this is kind of big data, this is innovation in general, is so we need to find ways to, to measure success and then we need to find ways to promote success that kind of inspire other people to continue to do the same thing. And when I look at that challenge that we did, even though we didn't ultimately make a massive gold discovery from it, we hosted a gala with 600 people that raised $250,000 for charity that we eventually gave all that money back to the local community, and it was all based off this kind of ancient data set that had no use to us. And it was through that whole experience that we realized there's so much more to innovation than really just kind of putting things online and hoping for answers or applying machine learning or disruption or every other buzzword out there out there to it. I think if we can clearly define kind of what our objective is with big data or or innovation in general, we will have much more success as a sector in kind of achieving that. And I think there are so many examples of innovation that kind of we're working on today, but I don't think we've really clearly outlined the benefits to those. If it's to make trucks a little bit faster, I think we need to take a step back and think a little bit bigger than that. So it's a little more than just data science in general. To your data science To that part specifically, I really think we just need to identify the problems that we're trying to achieve and then kind of when they're achieved, I don't think the work's done at that point. I think we all make the mistake of thinking that in itself is good enough. It's really going to be taking those achievements and then putting them in a way that kind of be universities or other companies or everyone else can use. Because when we look at other sectors and what they do, a lot of it comes to kind of first kind of seeing the opportunity from data science and everything else, but then also sharing that information with might be competitors with other groups, and then building on it and building on it and building on it. And hopefully with all that, we can start to close that 30-year gap. I think it's probably 40 or 50 years, but that's where the opportunity is.
5: I'll just quickly add there, Steve, um, one thing that we're seeing as we are engaged with lots of these companies, at least on the exploration side, obviously we all want to find answer, but what's critical is what are the right questions to ask with the data? So that ability to explore data... I know the business audience uh, would always drive towards, what did you find? But that ability to explore data, ask a different question, is so key, and especially to the previous point of attracting the geologists who are 22, 23-year-olds. They simply don't want to do the manual work that is necessary to put multiple data sets together Uh, from a talent attraction and higher-quality work perspective we have to focus on are we asking the right question? Are we enabling people with the right decision support so they can actually explore data better? In addition to what answer did you find?
3: Nadine, you have a really interesting perspective coming from the mining side, a lot of experience on the mining side as a geotechnical engineer, and now working for a venture capital firm that invests in cybersecurity and intelligence technology. So two very different uh, industries, uh, moving at two very different speeds. Very different. How has your perspective on the mining industry changed from, from this new experience you have?
8: Well, it's so interesting to see, to go from, it might not be a popular opinion, but, you know, we talk a lot about innovation in mining, but we have a real problem adopting new technologies before, so we need to learn how to crawl before we walk. So I think we should focus on adopting, and I'm now in an industry where it is hyper, so it's early adopters. We're talking... You know, terror attacks and corporate cyber attacks. And we're investing in companies that we don't discuss big data. It's just machine learning now. And so it's the machine that is the algorithm that is learning. We invested in one company. It's no longer facial recognition for crowds. It's motion recognition because the attacker probably isn't known to Interpol. And it's their movement that we're looking at. And so you're looking at tens of thousands of people at the same time or processing going through an airport. And when you go to a company or you go to someone with that technology, they don't ask who's installed it before. Where in mining, if you're have a new business, the first thing they say is, well, where else have you put it in? And they don't want to be the first one. Nobody does because what's my ROI? I don't know. (laughs) You would be the first. Even if you're looking at other industries, for example, the chemical industry, which also has processing plants. You know, they'll adopt a new technology way before mining. My father, back in early 90s, late 80s, he was working at CIL, a chemical company, and they were the first implementers of SAP. I would guarantee you that there are mining companies out there that still don't have SAP or Oracle. So we're very slow. So we're on geologic time. And cybersecurity is on, they've got the time machine, right? They can go backwards and forwards. So I say shame on us. I say we should really look at people that are coming out with innovative ideas that can help. I mean, if you look at Adobe, Adobe spun off an organization called Kickbox. So it's kickbox.org. And it was Mark Randall, who used to be the chief's um, innovation officer at Adobe. And this is a, a box that you get, or you would get it at Adobe. As an employee, you would request it, and it gave you a $1,000 credit card. And with that credit card, you had your own project. If you could show some way to make a new product or a new innovation within Adobe, nobody asked any questions how you use that $1,000. What Mark said when I met him 18 months ago in Palo Alto is he said, from that red box, they have 17 products that were now coming out of Adobe. That kickbox.org, if you look at it, it's been highlighted in the Times all over the place. Why don't we do that in our companies? Why don't we say to all of our engineers, you know, maybe you've got a good idea to help improve underground systems. We don't celebrate ideas, we kind of push them down. So I say, we need to change our culture. Even
3: before you, you get to innovating new ideas, there are <laughs> off-the-shelf technologies that are available in other from other industries. Can yeah. you tell us a few
8: ideas? Yeah, so one of um so it's uh, it's a company called Sega OT. Uh, it's based in Israel and it's a cybersecurity company, but it goes into process plants, like the New York Power Authority is putting it in. And because they're using an algorithm that is machine learning, it's actually coming back and telling their clients how to improve their plants. So when I heard about this investment, I said to my boss, I said, this would be great for mining. <laughs> because what it does, it they call it prescriptive maintenance. So this algorithm will tell you before you know what's going on in your process plant that you need to fix something. What you thought was optimal may not be your plant running at its optimum, and it will tell you. It'll, it'll have new correlations that you might not have even known about. I went to Israel uh, to a plant, a chemical plant in Beersheba, and I got to see firsthand the system in use. And I didn't understand what they were saying in Hebrew, but I certainly understood the engineers and their mannerisms, because they had just had a failure. And this technology was telling them that what they thought had caused the failure hadn't. And so that saves you time, too. So um,
5: so I'll just say, um, I think you're talking about set point optimization at plants.
8: Yeah, so this technology, um, it's not at the PLC level, which is level zero on the Purdue scale. It monitors the electrical signals. Okay. So okay. it's at level zero. They are the only company that we're aware of in the world that monitors the electrical signals in your plant. They have four U.S. patents, which is their barrier to entry. And yeah, so the New York Power Authority there, in a nuclear facility, they're in a few other facilities. So they have 25 installations. And then when you talk to somebody in mining, they're like, Any mining?
5: No. But in terms of, and it makes sense, uh, in terms of process optimization, we're seeing that across all of our clients, significant value, simply because uh, most of these organizations have PLCs in place, which is basically you know, predefined parameters of a system. But that system is optimized only based on that system. Now the discussion is system of systems optimization. One of our clients, Suncor, their base plant is as big as half of Northern San Francisco. They have many, many plants. So you have all these mini plant managers who have been given parameters, how they were operating, but now that you have real-time feed from those processes, as well as scenario generation capability in real-time, just like how uh, a schedule gets put together for an airport or any other sophisticated optimization techniques. There's a group called Sitewide Leads. They are the super plant managers, and they're overriding based on overall system performance, not just the individual siloed optimization. Because I think what we have done in the heavy industry, we have done very good vertical optimization in a small unit. Now it's a time to go actually horizontal at a higher level, so you're making better overall decision, not just a unit level optimization decisions.
3: Going back to the underground mine and uh, for for some of the suppliers on the panel, your machines are covered with sensors. Um, Are your clients making good use of this data and how can they make better use of it? Louis-Pierre, why don't you start?
6: Well, uh, it it all depends on the clients obviously, but uh, one way to make better use of this data, and this I think is a recurrent theme here, is to standardize the data. Because right now, there's a lot of data set coming in from different parts of the mind that are optimized locally, as uh, Powell said. And we're not thinking into consideration the whole, the big pictures. And like, there's, there's a reason why it's called big data and not siloed, independent, and data that doesn't talk to each other. It's because this is where the, the real power is. Like, just with predictive maintenance, we've seen great improvement in predicting power based on, do you do you train on one vehicle, do you train on 10 vehicles, or 10 vehicles from 10 different mines? Standardization, in order to be able to uh, sort of put the data together, is really uh, the way to go to make more out of this data.
3: So how easy is that to do? Do they need a data scientist on, on staff? How how do they do that?
6: Well, obviously you need someone who understands the data, so it needs to be someone in the mining. It needs to come from the mines, because... I don't think someone who's never, never been underground can really uh, figure out from a lines of zeros and ones, well this, ex- this is exactly the same thing as this, so we're just going to put it into the same column. And so it needs well both involve- involvement from the miners or the maintenance guys, and also from someone who has the capability uh, technology-wise to uh, really do what, uh, say the miners are actually describing, or what the maintenance manager would like to do with the data. Because in the end, like, a, you know, an engine oil pressure from a Sandvik or a Caterpillar is an engine oil pressure. They might not be called the same way, but, you know, there's a ground truth in there that uh, needs to be exploited.
3: Eddie or Walter, do you want to weigh in?
2: We're in a little different uh, situation as is, is we, we do a lot of remote control and tele-remote control on machinery. Although we have access to some of the sensors, we don't collect that much data. The part that, that was always missing, and it's just recently, the last couple of years, is getting any traction, is when you try to automate something... Typically, a human can do the job very well. We just, we're just not very good at doing it repetitively. So one of the problems we ran into is we're in an industry that is governed and watched so closely. It was very hard to try and get any of, them, any of our customers, we have a lot of them, that would actually allow us to record video. because so we have the data of what the machine's doing, but we don't have the video of what it's actually, why the guy did it. So, for instance, we have about 70 installations of teleremote controlled rock breakers in mines, underground mostly in underground mines. I can see that, the, you know, the boom moved to the left, but why did the guy go there to the left? Is the it, it rock bigger? Was there a crack? in What did he see? Because we don't have the video. And it's actually just in the last, just this month actually, we've actually got permission from several of our customers to start recording the video and the data simultaneously. Now, the reason for that is really simple. Historically, if you sat and you went underground, you watched a guy run a machine, he's on his best behavior. But do that at 3 o'clock in the morning. And he's doing stuff he's not supposed to do because he can get the job done. So maybe if his hammer's not working right, he'll take it and try and jam it through the, the grizzly and break the machinery. So they use it for punishment purposes. And that's kind of the agreement, is don't punish people for doing it. Let them do what they do, watch why they do it, and then let's we'll see if we can figure out how to do it better. And we can, this is from historical data. But it's kind of a different thing. It's not the machine. What we need to do is match the machine with what the person's actually doing and why he's doing it.
4: Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And, and, um, I mean, what I see with data and how how Sandvik is starting to see data is, you know, as an industry, we take anecdotes and we take, you know, the the last person's mind design and we take, you know, 10 years ago. So what we get is a mind plan from the 1990s that's got 10% factor from the engineering group and then the the mining engineer doesn't believe it, so they put another 10% factor on it. So it's all based on somebody's anecdotes from several generations in some cases. And what big data and data in real time and all this information allows you to do is make decisions and, and design mines in real time to technology that exists today. And I think that's really going to be a key enabler going forward in the next generation of mines is... Stop looking at an ore body from a 1990s perspective. Let's look at it from a 2020s perspective. And how can we make this the most optimized ore body? I mean, are we using a cutoff grade that's only five grams per ton because we're using a $60 per ton cutoff grade or a mining cost? Well, hang on, we know with our operating costs in 2020, these are much lower. Well, we can do this and apply these technologies. And that's those data sets that also support those business decisions that can go all the way back up, up to the top of the, the business decision. And then that can filter back through the business as KPIs and business drivers going forward to monitor and control those costs. So it's, it's, it creates a lot of opportunities. But, I mean, you go to some mines and, and mean that they want the data, but then they don't have the underground network installed. So they've got to drive past one access point in the mine to gain the data that they may only get once a month or once a week. Or they may not even have an IT person on site or a data scientist on site that can actually compute or... Um, you know, able to understand the data or understand the network to install it. So, if we look at it, these technologies from a historical lens, there's a lot of limitations in how people approach it. It becomes self-fulfilling that the the system or the technology doesn't get the value realization that it could. So
5: let me add something there. Two data points for you. If you look at the most, so as we look through all the industries, <clears throat> the social media and the big techs are probably the furthest ahead from a data internal resources point of view. They have thousands of people working on machine learning models. An example would be, you know, the ad that shows up on your Google screen. It's not a coincidence why that's there, right? Thousands of people are working on to make sure the right ad showing up to the right eyeballs. If you look at the middle of the pack, most of the banks, most banks in this city. Uh, Have four to six hundred people working on data analytics type of use cases. And unfortunately, uh, probably mining, and I like that chart uh, somebody was showing before mining and agribusiness. If you look at the left side of the spectrum, some of the big boys, they're starting to have in total 100, 150 people as a total project team, internal, external resources. Some of those companies will start to have 20, 30, 40 people internally that's focused on data analytics. Second data point I want to kind of share with you, I think we have to think about data scientists, data engineers in a different way. The future geologist, the future exploration uh, analyst, uh, the future uh, mechanics, they're all going to be data scientists. They're just going to be geologists first then they're going to know how to run Python codes and all sorts of things. So the world is moving in a space where everybody is going to be a data-savvy professional. Their first degree might be in geology or exploration, but they're certainly picking up with all the open-source technology and education that's available. Uh, In in our consulting practice, we have 250 people. bulk of those people started with different types of domains that has nothing to do with data analytics, Mm -hmm. but they came from geophysics, or physics, astrophysics, neuroscience, biology, and then picked up tools, and now they're applying that in a particular industry. So that's how I would think about how the evolution we see in these large and also mid-sized companies
3: we just have a minute left, so I just want to pick up on a point that Nadine made. I'm sure you've all seen examples of successful adoption of new technology and not so successful. What makes the difference? What, what makes a company successful when they adopt new technology? Louis-Pierre, do you want to start?
6: I think there's a big, big part of it that is planning change management, mm-hmm. especially especially with uh, you know, things that mark the imagination as like artificial intelligence. Everybody's heard of it, everybody's sort of afraid of it, afraid of admitting it, maybe, but I think we have to be cautious in how pushy we are in, with, with those technologies. We have to really plan long-term on how these technologies are gonna be received, or else, while well, we, we might you know, see something like uh, in the presentation from this morning, having a backlash of uh, getting people uh, angry at the technology and uh, you know really not helping us making this step forward.
3: Uh, Steve and Nadine? <clears throat> and then we'll leave it there.
7: I think success is ultimately defined by kind of what are are we trying to achieve? Like to the example of, are we trying to make trucks more efficient? Are we trying to make mining cheaper? Or what is the ultimate objective? I I think the ultimate objective is to kind of get ore out of the ground for the lowest amount of money as possible. And ideally with the least amount of impact on the environment at the same time. In the future, we should be defining success based on pretty simple metrics, like kind of what kind of makes our business more profitable and more sustainable going forward. And like I, I use the machine learning in, art, in exploration as an example. What is the ultimate objective? Is it to kind of reduce your $100 million expiration budget by 10% because now you're just drilling holes that the computer has told you there's no gold there or, or whatever you're looking for? Or is it to kind of completely reinvent kind of your, your expiration strategy so you only have to drill maybe it's only 5% of those holes to achieve the same result. It really just comes down to, I guess it's no over simplistic answer, but I think we're going to be able to define or, or know if we're being successful by kind of looking at how we define success ahead of time and see if we're essentially accomplishing that. Is technology, and, and whether it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, or whatever it may be, being an innovative, is that helping us kind of to better achieve our goals or not?
3: Nadine, the last word goes to you.
8: Um, so I think that people have been burnt in mining because they've, put a lot of money into a new technology that hasn't worked out. And then they never do it again, and they tell their friends, and then nobody wants to do it. I think that as a board member, somebody comes up to you with a new technology and you think that's great, and you, you pass them over, you introduce them to someone in operations, and operations and just like, forget it. I think that we need to look at, what is our end goal, as Steven said? It is to make more money at a cheaper cost. Uh, and there are things that are out there to help us. And if there is something that is off the shelf and is working in another industry, like, why aren't we using it? It doesn't make any sense to me. We shouldn't be 20 years behind. We should, you know, let's strive to be with all the other industries. We don't have to be ahead of the pack. But within the pack, uh, that's where we need to look to be.
7: And and I think one thing I'll add to that, too. I think we just have to accept the fact that R&D is not sort of a linear process. And kind of, we can put all this money into these ideas and these innovative ideas, but a lot of them are going to have a 0% IRR. They're not going to return anything for us because they just didn't work. And we can grab off-the-shelf technologies or apply new technologies, but some of them just aren't going to work. That's just the way of life. But we just have to accept that reality. Otherwise, kind of, we'll just become stagnant and keep doing what we're, what we're doing. It's not like if we put $10 million into every individual company, if they put X amount into innovation and technology, they're going to get $12 million back. Some are going to get zero, and some are going to get $200 million back. But I think we just need to create tools as an entire industry where we just share that knowledge. So if your company has success success with your R&D and mine doesn't, maybe some of that can transfer over because ultimately if our industry becomes more profitable, that is good for everybody. We all have our plots of land. We're not competing for individual plots of land. So I, I think if we can take that attitude to it, I think that's where a lot of... Someone mentioned Dyson earlier. That's a perfect example. I've heard they've got a 3,000-person R&D team, and I bet half of those people are coming up with ideas that aren't going to turn into profitable applications. That's innovation in general. So... Yeah, I agree with you. some of the, there will be technologies out there off the shelf we can pull from other industries and just accept the fact at the same time that some of them just aren't going to work.
3: We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much to all of our panelists today.
0: And I hope you enjoyed that episode on big data and AI, the digital mind of the future. You really see how complicated the whole situation is it's easy to criticize the mining industry and the mining industry can do more but you really see how there's a lot of subtleties to this issue so I think this discussion really helped bring out a lot of really the complicated aspect of integrating technology into a mine it's not simply a matter of increasing the budget okay that's one component but there is a lot to it so Thank you for joining me this episode. If you want to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Directory, we always appreciate that. Feel free to share it with your friends. We love, uh, you know, the fact that we have a lot of student listeners. Share it with your geology friends. And until next week,
2: take care.